And remember that while we're on the path to create the causes to fulfill our very noble aspiration, hindrances will arise because that's the nature of samsara. And so let's greet the various hindrances and obstacles, be they physical or emotional or whatever they are. Let's greet them with a mind that sees them as the result of karma and is willing to bear the discomfort by thinking that this is burning up negative karma that could ripen in a far worse situation or in a lower rebirth. And by generating compassion for all the other living beings who have the same kind of pain or discomfort or obstacles that we do. And so use what we experience to cultivate compassion for other living beings rather than getting angry or getting down on it. And to just believe in our long-term goal and our potential to become fully awakened and then just continue on the path. So with that kind of long-term view and a mind of courage, then let's generate the bodhicitta motivation to attain full awakening so we can really do something of great benefit for living beings. So listening to the teachings now is one step in that direction, one drop in the bucket of purification and creation of merit. So, uh, last week, and I think the week before, we've been talking about impermanence and death, right? And specifically about the, uh, the nine-point death meditation, okay? So, uh, meditating on the three sub-points, which each have three sub-points, yeah, So first remembering that death is definite. There's absolutely no way to avoid it. And to come to the conclusion because of that, that we will practice the Dharma. Okay. So why would we conclude from from 
the, the awareness that death is definite, that we should practice the Dharma. Why don't we conclude that we're all going to become scientists and try and stop death from occurring? Or go into cryogenics so that we can freeze everybody's body uh, until the scientists, you know, can come up with something to restore uh, life. Yeah. Why do why do we come away from, you know, an awareness of the def- the certainty of death, with thinking that we need to practice the Dharma? Mm-hmm. I guess it's the only thing that will help at the time of death. And how does it help? Um, well, it um, it gives us um, first of all, it helps us avoid creating negative karma that could ripen at the time of death and kind of spur us onto a, a bad rebirth. Mm-hmm. Um, it also gives us the um, uh, help us reduce our attachment to our body and attachment to this life, which can also be a positive factor at the time of death. And it gives us the peace of mind that we need to generate uh, positive states at the time of death so that that can also help us um, to um, generate a good rebirth for yeah. the next life. Yeah. Because if we just say, uh, you know, do what often people do because they don't know about the Dharma, which is let's not think about it, then it's like, uh, you know, do you remember when you were a teenager and you had to go take your first driver's lesson at the DMV and how petrified you were? And, you know, if you're unprepared, and we probably were all very prepared, you know, but if you're unprepared, you're going to flunk the driving test. And if we're unprepared for death, it's going to be, you know, even more messy. Okay. And then the second uh, sub-point is that, uh, okay, the death may be definite, but the time of death is uncertain. Okay. And so from that, we generate the conclusion that not only must we practice the Dharma, but we must do it now. Okay. So why? Why should we do it now? We have a long life to live. There's many things to experience. Yeah. Why do you want to sit and... You know, look at your belly button or read the philosophy texts or meditate on compassion and, you know, Trump somehow try and get yourself to forgive somebody you hate. Hmm? I think these meditations on death uh, work for me because they come after the meditation on the precious human rebirth. Mm-hmm. Then it's very clear to me, especially because I was born in a country with a lot of dharma, but I didn't need it till I came here, then it really mm-hmm. hits home like, wow, you know, the conditions are so rare and anytime they can disappear, then I can make the connection, you know, why meditating on death leads to those conclusions. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I remember the first time we were learning Aryadeva's 400 stanzas and the whole <laughs> first chapter is just death. Like, it was a bit like, <laughs> as a beginner, it was um, 
a lot to take in. Mm. But in the context of the sta- you know, stages of the path meditations, then, then it, I don't panic. <laughs> like mm. the conclusion is clear mm-hmm. in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always visualize this point as the body being like a car and that the gas tank gauge doesn't work. <laughs> and so mm. that helps propel me to think, don't get complacent about this. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that, you know, where we are, the, the dedications that we make and the news that we hear is that this whole idea that it's anybody can die at any age. And so that brings me, and, and, the, and the way that they die sometimes is, who would have ever thought, you know, mm-hmm. the wild catastrophes, accidents, just going to bed at night and not ever waking up. So the gas tank analogy of not having a needle there to determine Mm-hmm. gets me to think a little bit more certain. The uncertainty part is the part that I think about a lot. Yeah. So that propels you to act now a lot more. because the gas can run out. And I'll have no idea when. Mm-hmm. It's a good analogy. Mm-hmm. And then the third point is uh, at the time of death, our body, our... Um, well, first, our, our uh, possessions and money, our friends and relatives, and our body, none of them uh, benefit us at death time. And so the conclusion we draw from that is that, therefore, not only should we practice the Dharma, not only should we practice now, but we should practice purely without being pulled away by the eight worldly concerns. Okay? So, how does that conclusion to not be pulled away by uh, by clinging to the eight worldly concerns, how does that come from contemplating that our finances and, and possessions, our friends and relatives, and our body don't come with us? How do you get that conclusion? If I just look at my mind and my life and see how easy it is to be pulled into the eight worldly concerns and um, when that happens, how dharma is lost, it's like, where to go? And so, um, uh, and so all of those material things, all the fleeting pleasures, all of those things um, are uh, foremost in my mind, and if I died right then, look what kind of mind that is. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and also, we create so much destructive karma trying to protect or get money and possessions, relationships with people, and uh, to make this body comfortable and and take care of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the um, um, effect of the eight worldly concerns in terms of swinging from attachment to aversion is very destabilizing to the mind. Mm. And so, if you are in that swinging back and forth, then there is less energy. There, to practice, there is less um, concentration or ability to practice. 
yeah, the mind that cannot sort of focus really well yeah. because you're kind of swinging between those two opposite states. Right. Yeah. And because the body, uh, the finances and, and possessions, the relationships with people, the, um, our body, those are all the objects of the eight worldly concerns. Yeah. So the more we pay attention to those things, the more the eight worldly concerns are going to arise and take us away from the Dharma and make us create the opposite kind of karma from what we want. Yeah. Okay, so that's where we left off at the end of last week. So thinking about death like this should not be depressing. Okay? If you're getting depressed, then you're not really thinking about it properly. Because the depression or the panic comes through being attached to possessions, friends and relatives, and our body, and then not wanting to separate from those. Okay, that's what causes the, the panic when people think about death, because it's a total separation from our whole ego identity and everything that's familiar to us now. So if that is a, a feeling is arising, then we have to work on our attachment to those things, you know, realizing that they're impermanent, they can't bring lasting happiness, even if we had them, and even if every situation was perfect, still there wouldn't be lasting happiness. You know? And that to really see that attachment to them actually is what creates so many problems in our life and makes us miserable. Because when we're attached, we want possessions, relationships, comfort for our body. And then what happens when we can't get it? What happens when we get it and then it goes away? What happens when uh, we lose? We lose it. Yeah. Okay. See, we can see that attachment is what is the culprit that causes the worldly fear of death, which is this panic feeling, okay? That's not what we as practitioners are trying to create. You don't need to meditate to create that. Worldly people, you know, we can can make ourselves scared and panicky and like that all by ourselves, okay? So what this meditation is trying to bring about in our mind yeah, is clarity about the focus of our life and the meaning of our life. And, uh, you know, so that when we have some clarity about those things, then a lot of our existential angst disappears. And a lot of our problems, our relationship problems, aren't so problematic. Our financial problems aren't so awful. Our 
physical things with our body, you know, and dealing with an aging body, that, you know, we stop making a big deal about that. And so automatically our suffering right now decreases. Okay, so we get clarity about our priorities in life and we get a decrease in in problems that uh, happen right now. Okay, so we should remember, like, what is the purpose of doing this meditation and what are the conclusions we want to draw? Because if we don't, if we aren't clear about that, then just thinking about death is like, oh, no, I'm going to be separated from all the people I love. I don't want that to happen. Uh, I'm, you know, oh, my body's going to die. Who am I going to be? Oh, I'm going to lose my money. I don't want to separate from my money and my house. And, you know, and, and then the mind just totally freaks out. Huh? But if we meditate properly, then there's an acceptance of death, and we can use that awareness to actually uh, make our life a lot more peaceful now and be able to set our priorities so we don't get so confused about what to do and what we want and so on. Okay? So where we stopped last week was right after that third major sub-point, so I want to pick up from there. It's on page 211. So, Sri Jagam Mitrananda's letter to the moon, letter to King Moon. Oh, sorry, I forgot his title. <laughs> okay, Chandraraja is his name. Okay, so this says, Divine One, no matter what fortunes you have gained, when you depart to another rebirth, as though conquered by an enemy in the desert, you are alone without children or queen, without clothing, without servants, without kingdom, and without palace. So who are you going to be? You think you're a big shot right now? Yeah? What do you have that, that can last? Though you have limitless power and armies, you will not see or hear them. Eventually, not even one being or thing will follow you in an everlasting way. In brief, if you lack even a name at that time, what need is there to speak about anything else? Yeah? So, I mean, we're going to become nobodies. The most we're going to get out of it is an obituary, which we aren't even going to be able to read because we're going to be in another realm by the time it gets published. Okay? And then who knows what they're going to say in the obituary. They surely won't write it the way we want them to. Yeah. We want them to say this and that about us, and they'll forget all the the nice things, you know. Okay. And then Shantideva counsels, the untrustworthy lord of death. So this is anthropomorphizing uh, death, you know. There's not a real being. The untrustworthy lord of death without waiting whether or not something has been done, 
whether one is sick or otherwise, suddenly comes, do not be complacent about life. So, you know, when it's time to die, it's time to die. And we're going to be in the middle of something. So we may have a lot of things we want to do or a lot of things we want to finish. Or you may have a bucket list of, you know, you want to go to Disneyland and you want to go, you know, to the Dunhuang Caves and, you know, who knows what you want to do. But you may not get to do them. Death may come before that. And when you die, if you haven't done those things, if you haven't done the worldly things, it doesn't really matter. But if there's Dharma practice that we haven't done, you know, then that, then we're really going to feel that at the time of death. So don't be complacent about life. Leaving all behind, I must depart alone. So it's not going to be that all of our friends and relatives are going to have a big party for us and we're dying and now they're all going to say how much they love us and apologize to us for everything they did that we didn't like. And then, you know, have a big thing of everybody waving goodbye with smiles on their face while we go off into the sunset. No, it's not going to be like that, okay? So, leaving all behind, I must depart alone. Through not having understood this, I committed various kinds of negativities for the sake of my friends and foes. Yeah, so, I mean, if we look and we review the kind of karma that we've created... You know, we see that we have created a lot of negativities, uh, you know, for our friends and to get even with our foes. And this is what comes with us at the time of death, not the friends and not the foes. Just like an experience in a dream, whatever things I enjoy will become a memory. Whatever has passed will not be seen again. So we have a fantastic dream this life. Yeah, totally unbelievable dream. But at death, it's just going to be a memory. Yeah, and we can't take it with us. And, you know, we can't uh, take all the memories with us because... We'll be going through the whole death process and into a new rebirth. We're not going to have uh, our our journal with us or our um, our our uh, um, you know gadget with all that we've put all of our pictures in, so that the pictures keep turning. You know all the pictures of our life, and uh, you know we're not going to have that with us or our scrapbooks or all the family photos, yeah, or all of our souvenirs, or any of it. Yeah, it's going to stay here, and other people are going to look at it and say, why was she saving all this junk? Yeah. Do you think people will look at some of the stuff you saved? You had, you collected, 
and saying, why was she saving all this junk? When I was in high school, I had a whole scrapbook. Somebody gave me this scrapbook. It was a dating scrapbook. <laughs> so that you could put in souvenirs from all the dates you went on. So the napkins from the restaurant, the ticket stubs from the movies, you know, all these things. So, I, you know, I was a good teenager. I made my dating scrapbook. Yeah. And when I went to India, it got stored in, in a garage. And when I came back and I had to clean myself stuff out before I went to be ordained, I threw it all out. Can you imagine? My mother was horrified. You know? All those souvenirs. You know, my first date with Harry Addington. From him on up. Okay, do you remember your first date, who you had your first date with? Yeah. So, and where you went, and then all the other people you dated. Okay, and then it got thrown out. I mean, just think, if I had saved that, all of you could look at it right now. And I'm sure you would be very interesting and seeing those napkins and tickets. <laughs> and a few pictures, too, you know. <laughs> Shantideva continues, Thereby, through not having realized that I will suddenly vanish, I committed many negativities through ignorance, attachment, and hatred. Okay, so to get that dating scrapbook, what I did motivated by attachment, yeah, what I did motivated by anger, when the guys, you know, were supposed to call, you know, they were supposed to, if they called on Monday, it meant they really liked you. If they called on Tuesday, that, that was good too. If they called on Wednesday, it was they couldn't find a date on Monday and Tuesday, so your second choice. And if they called it on Thursday, forget it, you know. <laughs> you remember all that? <laughs> yeah, and then we got angry. So, um, yeah, and that's just being a teenager. Imagine what adults do. So our worldly actions are like ripples in water, one leading to the next. Our mind distracted by the endless worldly activities in our lives. We have little time for Dharma practice before death arrives. At that time, regret overwhelms us as we realize that time could have been spent cultivating wisdom and cutting the root of samsara. Okay? So if we have faith in the Dharma path, we don't want to arrive at our death and say, uh, 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 you know, I, I haven't done anything. In addition, many of our constructive actions are polluted by the eight worldly concerns. 
Creating the image of being an excellent practitioner, we hunger for praise, offerings, and reputation. And then we go around acting like we're some kind of great practitioner so that people will give us all this ego-pleasing stuff that we want. Unaware, we miss the chance to prepare for death. There's a story about a man who slipped by walk, while walking on the edge of a cliff. He broke his fall by catching hold of a root. Looking up, he saw a strawberry, and yearning for the pleasure of its taste overwhelmed him. Meanwhile, a rat was busy gnawing the root. Distracted by desire for the strawberry, he did not protect himself and fell to his death as the root broke. So this is the story that many Western Buddhists draw a very different conclusion from because he's hanging there and seeing the strawberry and the rats digging it, you know, gnawing at the root, and he thinks, I'm going to die, so why not just enjoy the moment and be in the pleasant moment, present moment, and eat the strawberry? So I've heard this kind of version of the story in some Buddhist magazines, but that's not the version my teacher taught. Oblivious of the effects our actions have on others and ourselves, we often act impulsively, and grasp whatever will fulfill our needs and wants in the present moment. But when we arrive at the end of our lives and look back, or even if we look back now at what we did for the last 10 years, which of our actions were really valuable? Mm -hmm. I have never heard of a dying person regretting that they did not work more overtime. or they did not buy the right stock when the market was, when the value of the stock was low and they could buy it and it would go up. Remembering this, let's be mindful and make wise decisions now, steering our energy towards Dharma practice, an activity that will bring ourselves and others benefit for a long time to come. Yeah. So especially the things that annoy us, yeah, what other people do that we get so annoyed about. When you really think about death, it's like, why am I making such a big deal about this? Yeah. So when Geshe Nawandargi was teaching us uh, that chapter from uh, Arya Devas, the 400, on death, my neighbor in the next room used to play her radio so loud. My, that whole time when he was teaching that chapter, I would come back, meditate on death. My mind was so peaceful. I didn't care she played her radio loud. I didn't bother getting angry. It's like, I have better things to do with my time and energy. So think sometimes about the things that, you know, small things people do. Yeah, you're in a hurry and they ask you to help put a dish out for lunch. It's like, why are you asking me? I'm in a hurry to do something, leave me alone. You know, 
to, to just think about the things that we get irascible about and ask ourselves, what's the use? Yeah, what's the use if we're going to die and we don't know when we're going to die? Is this how we want to spend our life? You know, criticizing people, blaming people, yeah, hating people, vowing never to forgive them for what they did to us. You know, is that a wise use of our time and, and human energy? I don't think so. Although many great masters may recite prayers for our good rebirth, perform powa, the transference of consciousness after our death, or give us instructions to recognize the bardo, the intermediate state between one life and the next, after the breath has stopped. It is far more effective to have studied and practiced the Dharma we learned while alive. Yeah? So it's strange. I mean, you look around, all of a sudden, when somebody dies, then, you know, they're approaching death, then got to do something, okay? And so your friends and relatives, quickly, they organize prayer ceremonies for you. Okay? And they call a high lama to do poa for you. And they, um, you know, try and get it so that somebody gives you some high teaching in Tibetan that you can't understand, but you're still hearing it, so it's planting good seeds on your, on your mind stream. Yes, that all is very nice, but it would be far more beneficial and useful to have studied and practiced the Dharma while we were alive. Yeah? And like I was saying the other day, if we want to help our friends and relatives, the best way to do it is to encourage them to practice virtue and abandon non-virtue while they're alive. Yeah? Then, you know, you can do things after they die and so on. But, um, you know, the main thing is while they're alive. So don't just think, you know, oh, I'm sitting here, I'm, you know, I have so many Dharma friends. When I die, they're all going to come together and they're going to do this puja and that puja and that'll help me. So in the meantime... Uh, you know, I'll get mad at them and irritated and, and have craving and desire and do all sorts of stupid things because I know my friends will pray for me and make offerings for me after I die. Yeah? Is that wise? Pretty dumb, isn't it? And, and here, <laughs> this is typical His Holiness, you know, doing the uh, the instructions to recognize bardo and, and you know, getting powa and all this uh, and having somebody teach you or do that to you after, as you're dying. His Holiness says, if we don't pay attention to these master's instructions while we are alive, what makes us think we will listen to them when we're dying? Yeah. He doesn't pull any punches, you know. If we don't listen to Dharma instructions, yeah, while our, we're alive and we're healthy and we can listen and understand and practice, 
What makes us think that when we're dying, and it's so confusing because we're separating from this body, what makes us think at that time we're all of a sudden going to sit up straight and listen to Dharma teachings and then go back and meditate on them? You know, it's like, that's not going to happen. We can pay people to do many things for us, to mow the lawn or to prepare a report, but we cannot hire someone who will eat for us so that we feel nourished. As with eating and sleeping, creating virtue and abandoning non-virtue are activities we must do ourselves. Can't hire anybody to do it for us. Knowing that only the Dharma benefits us at death, generate the determination to practice it purely, free from the influence of the eight worldly concerns. Whereas death arrives effortlessly, spiritual development requires effort. We cannot wait and hope that with the passage of time we will become more disciplined, loving, and compassionate. Only through careful training can we develop these qualities. Although our body may get old, weak, and eventually stop functioning, our afflictions will not decline and disappear with time. In fact, sometimes they grow stronger, and some people become more bitter, angry, or emotionally dependent as they age. And we've certainly seen that. Have you seen that in people that you know? Yeah. The afflictions remain fresh and energetic, unless we make an effort to counteract them. Years ago, I visited Thailand, where many monasteries have a skeleton near the meditation hall. I saw that, too, when I was in Thailand. Like, uh, sometimes it's just outside the hall, sometimes as soon as you, you enter in. One monastery had a display with photographs of the stages of a rotting corpse. Seeing these reminded me that I too will die, His Holiness says, and keeping that vividly in mind spurs me to transform my mind. When I was in Thailand uh, at the the monastery I was at, uh, we were able to go to a hospital and see an autopsy. In the States, you know, very difficult to do that kind of thing. But in Thailand, you know, they're quite aware that that this is something that the monks and nuns want to do as part of their practice, so they make it easy for you. So it was very interesting uh, to go. Um, I went with Wheeling, uh, one Singaporean woman, and then there were maybe maybe three or four Western monks who came. It was quite interesting. The Western monks were so afraid that Wheeling and I were going to faint. And it's like, guys, you know, we helped our mothers when we were little cooking meat. We've seen this already. This is not going to make us faint. And then we found out that one of the monks, the previous time he had gone, had fainted. Yeah. But it was, it was very interesting going. 
um, and watching, you know, they have this little kind of um, blade that turns around and they just do it like here, right around there, take off, you know, the top of your skull, take out your brain. You know, they were weighing different organs because they were also assessing why this guy died. This particular man drowned, okay? They put, you know, so, so you know the, the kinds of scales that they have at the grocery store where you weigh your pears and apples? So they put his brain in and weighed that and, you know, noted it down. And then, you know, cut open here, pulled out the esophagus and everything else, and just pulled it out and put it down over there. And then cut the sternum, open the whole thing up here, you know, pulled out the lungs, weighed them, weighed, pulled out the heart, weighed it, weighed the stomach, uh, you know, pulled everything out, okay? And the intestines and, you know, did the, the whole lot so that his everything, you know, all the inner organs were out. And they were all, you know, analyzed and weighed and investigated and everything. And then, you know, they had to put it all back together again because to release the body to the family. So then they took all the organs and they just stuffed them in. Yeah. Any which way. With all the newspaper, because when they took out the organs, they had put it on newspaper. So they just took all the newspaper or the organs, stuffed it in here, stuffed it in here. Maybe his stomach was in, it, was in his head. His brain was down here. This newspaper, who knows what the newspaper was saying, was, you know, they stuffed it all in and then sewed it up. You know, put, put the, the skull back on, sewed the whole thing up. Before they had done the skull, they had just cut the skin and then peeled it back. So then after they sewed this together, then they just brought it back here again so it looked like he had hair, you know, and, and sewed him up, and, and then he was good to go. Yeah? So... Uh, and it was very interesting to me because the the guy, the uh, uh, doctor, who who does uh, coroners, what more pathologists? Yeah. So they, you know, for him it was just like for us being with our mothers cooking meat. It was like you know, here's this and here's that and da, da, da. and um, yeah. But it was very interesting seeing that and then, you know, really thinking, okay, that's what this body is, you know. And how am I going to feel if somebody treats my body like that? And it's really interesting, you know, because it's like, okay, when I'm dead, I have no, uh, I'm not related to this body at all, you know. It's just a bunch of vegetable glue. But if they have to do an autopsy, you know, please handle it nicely. Yeah, and don't just throw my innards around and don't just slice this, this you know, here and, you know, go then <laughs> take it out and throw it on a scale, you know. <laughs> it's like, this is me, this is my body. You should treat it nicely. And then you come back and you realize, wait, I'm dead. 
Why am I attached to what happens to my body after I die? You know, and then you read about Nancy Reagan, who, you know, she had her hair done, and there was one movie star who wasn't, again, who had her hair done, her makeup, everything looked really good. You know, you have to look good in your casket because you've got to keep up your looks and your reputation. It's absurd, isn't it? And yet our mind goes, oh, but it's, it was mine. Well, first it's me. No, it was mine. Treat it nicely. It might get hurt if you just rip this, it open like this. That's going to hurt. And then you go, no, I'm dead. It's not going to hurt. Yeah? So it's very interesting to watch what our mind does. Yeah? And then... Oh, what happens if they're doing multiple autopsies and, you know, my stomach is put back in somebody else's body and their heart gets mixed up and puts back in in my body before they sew it up? Oh, no! You know? It's like, why do I care about that? Yeah? Why do I care about what happens to my body? Or how my body looks after I die. Or how people treat it. Yeah. We realize, boy, our mind is really kind of crazy. Yeah. As if we're going to be up there on some cloud and say, you know, I'm in the bardo and I'm transitioning to another life. But you better treat my body more respectfully. Yeah. And if you're going to embalm it, do a good job. Yeah. So, and it's amazing, you know, how people are so, the survivors when somebody dies, feel so guilty that. That's why they buy these incredible expensive caskets as if to make up to the dead person by putting their body in an expensive casket. Yeah. When my mom died, you know, we had to go back and choose a casket. In Judaism, uh, you, you have to be buried in a plain wooden thing. You can't have decorations and all this kind of stuff. And you have to be buried, uh, hopefully, within the next day. Yeah, it can be extended if, if the, all the relatives haven't arrived. But it's quick and it's simple and they don't, don't embalm you. But they took us back into that room because the cemetery had, you know, they buried all sorts of people from different religions. Some of those caskets... you know, with like silver handles and incredible padding inside so that your body's very comfortable. And then, you know, special charges for for embalming it and, you know, putting the makeup on. and, uh, And you have to bring in... Uh, the clothes that you want them buried in. 
Yeah. So we had to go look in my mom's closet. And what are we going to bury mom in? You know? And then wonder, how are they going to get that on her body? Because she has rigor mortis. So then, you know, we decided to do a nightgown because she never got dressed in the last years of her life. You know, she just stayed home. So... Uh, how are they going to get that over her body so it looks good? And what kind of slippers, you know, house slippers uh, do we have to put in? You know, with my dad, it was much easier because um, they had just got him. He was a big a- Angels baseball fan. So they had just got him an Angels sweatshirt, an Angels cap, you know, and and so it was very easy. He he got dressed in all of his angels thing, you know, with his baseball cap and his, yeah, that that was easy, you know, mom. We had to kind of look and think about it more. <laughs> yeah, some of you have had this experience. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, interesting. So this is mostly for the people behind. What? I mean, what is it? Sir, I mean, is it a, is it part of the grieving process? Is it just the self grasping? I mean, it, what's the whole ritual of burying people and memorials and stuff? It's mostly for the the living, for sure. And is it mm-hmm. the self grasping that's still identifying the self in that corpse? Like when, when people with the COVID, where they can't see their loved ones and they yeah. can't go to, through this whole process of even looking at the body, what does that do to the grieving process because we're so attached to the body as the identification of yeah. the loved one? Yeah. How does that How do we I have think to that's think why it? many people feel like with COVID, you know, they can't say goodbye. They can't hold the hand. They can't wash the body after, you know, their loved one dies. So they feel... As if the body, like, okay, they know it's just a dead body, but it's as if it's what they have left of the person because they can't see the mind and the mind's gone. So then they want to treat the body respectfully. They want to give pleasure to the body so that it's in this nice, comfortable casket, even though it doesn't have any sensations or any feelings, you know. And... So it's a, it's a way of human beings have of um, showing affection, of taking care of each other. Yeah, it's like I don't want to just take my loved one's body. And you know, people were getting so upset that it was getting buried in potters, the potter's field, with all the unclaimed bodies in just wooden boxes, because they were so overloaded with COVID deaths that they they couldn't bury people as they usually do. And people were feeling like, oh, this is terrible, you know. And when they can't see the loved one, I think that seeing the person dead brings it home, oh, yes, that person is dead. Whereas when they can't do that, there's some, you know, it feels incomplete. Or when they really... Because they, at that time when the person's dying, you know, they forget all the arguments. They forget all that. And they want to be nice. And so how do you show being nice? You do all these 
kind of ritual kind of things for the body. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I think a lot of the religious ceremonies, too, I think they're more for the living, you know, that yes, the prayers and stuff can help the people who died, but I think it's a way for the living to feel like they're doing something, anything for the for their loved ones because they couldn't control that person and make it so they didn't die. So they want to show their affection in some way. Yeah, or show their connection in some way. I just think about them so much as how they have to grieve without this ritual anymore, yeah. this framework. And yeah. how, you know, how will it impact long-term their ability to move on with their lives, to make peace with things, to do whatever we do with yeah. these yeah. rituals, they, you know? You know, and some people will adjust and adapt, and some people will feel like something's incomplete. You know, and especially too when you um, when you watch what happens when there's so many deaths in the hospital, and putting people in body bags, and I was watching something this morning in the Times. If you have a chance, you saw that about the Rockaway um, Hospital, and it, there was you know. It, they were putting people in a refrigerated trailer and, you know, it was like row five, slot two, you know? So it was like not somebody's address, you know, uh, this, this apartment five. It was your loved one was in this trailer, at, you know, a certain row at a certain number in a, in a body bag that looked like all the other dead bags. And the people who were moving them you could tell some of the people they were moving were really big because you had like three or four men there going one, two, three, and then moving it a few feet, and then one, two, three, lugging it another through feet. Or when they're in the trailer just dragging it, one guy dragging it, because there were so many deaths that, you know, this is, they had to get the bodies out of the hospital to make the beds available for other people. And they had to get them into the, tr the refrigerated trailer because otherwise they would sm start to smell. And so the guys who were doing this, they were saying, you know, this is my friend. This is my friend's father. These are people I grew up with, you know, and now they're just, you know, putting them in body bags and you know, one, two, three, uh, and moving them a, a little bit. Yeah. Amazing. So, you know, how these people get a sense of closure. I think for the time when, uh, that's why I think they try sometimes to get the, uh, the, the tablets in there where they can say goodbye, even if the person who's dying is, in, intubated and unconscious, it's still a feeling of I can say what I need to say while they're still alive, and maybe they can hear it. Yeah, and that helps a lot. 
or even before, you know, they're, they're died, if they can sometimes, because I think you can remove the, the tube. I was in a hospital once where somebody was intubated and they took the, the tube out and he got, became conscious quite quickly, you know, and then the family could say goodbye and, and I'll actually, in his case, it was, the family was asking him if, if he wanted, uh, to be uh, the intubation to be discontinued because it was a situation where he wasn't going to get better. Yeah. So they did that and asked him and he said yes. And then they, we moved the body to a separate room. It was very nice. They let us have a separate room where they, where he could die. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's hard. It can be very difficult for the family. Are there any meditations or practices we can do to prepare for our loved ones dying? Um, I mean, working with attachments, one thing, but yeah. kind of imagining death. Or? Yeah, I'm, I know what I did for years that really helped me was just imagining my parents dying and imagining what they were going to look like as dead corpses. Yeah, and imagining, you know, how am I going to feel when when they're dead? And, you know, what do I need to say to them now? And if I am with them when, the, when they die, how, what do I want to do to ease their, their pain and their confusion when they're dying? And then imagine being there and saying that to them. You know, because I knew for sure I didn't, if I was with my parents when they died, I didn't want to be there and be his, so hysterical myself that, you know, I'm making a big show and making everything worse and, and making, you know, making them upset because I'm upset. So I practiced this in my meditation a lot, like how I would act, what I would say, Things like that. Hmm? It was actually very helpful because uh, then when my parents died, I, you know, I was prepared. I had kind of rehearsed this. Someone asks, aren't preparations for the bardo important to practice and prepare for as part of one's dharma practice to be able to deal with throwing karma? The, the, thro the karma ripens before you enter the bardo. And the karma ripens, uh, you know, at, during the dying process where you still have some conscious awareness. So that's when the, the karma for your next life is ripening. So you want to be able, while you're dying, to generate a dharma motivation and put your mind in the dharma. How are you going to do that when you're dying? It's by keeping your mind in the dharma now, moment to moment, as much as you possibly can. You can't say, I'm just going to live my life and have a good time. And when death comes, then I will pay attention. I'll generate bodhicitta because, you know, when I die, you know, I'm just going to be lying there looking beautiful. Everything's going to be peaceful. And I'll generate bodhicitta. My mind won't be confused. I'm not going to be intubated. I'm not going to be filled with all kinds of narcotics. I'm not going to be in pain. I'm going to be clear and lucid, and the Dharma is going to be vibrant in my mind. And then meanwhile, during our life, 
Yeah, we forget the Dharma and our minds filled with attachment and jealousy and arrogance and, and resentment. Yeah, I mean, it's what His Holiness said here, you know, if we don't pay attention to these master's instructions while we're alive, what makes us think that we're going to listen to them when we're dying? So if we don't practice the Dharma when we are alive, what makes us think we're going to practice it as we're dying? And what makes us think that in the bardo, all of a sudden, you know, we're going to be wide awake and recognize it's the bardo and, and say, you know... I want to take me to the pure land or something like that. You know? We, we are creatures of habit and we have to create those causes now. And, and look what we're habituated with. You know, what is our usual MO? And what happens if we just play, you know, play out our usual MO? You know, we're in the hospital dying and you know, it's like, oh, move this sheet. I'm too hot. Take it off. You know, I'm too hot. You know, put on my slippers. I'm too cold. Comb my hair. I want some water. You know, are we just going to be some kind of disagreeable, complaining person as we're dying? If we have the energy when we're dying. Yeah. Or, our, you know, our friend Diana, Diana, who, who just passed away, apparently uh, when they were taking her to the hospital the night before she died, uh, she was saying, asking her daughter for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we don't know. And her, her daughter said, you know, we love you. There's nothing to forgive. But um, we don't know exactly what was going through Diana's mind that she was doing that. Because also she had... Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and not outside. Well, maybe it was well, dementia of some sort. Yeah, so um, yeah, we don't know exactly what was going through her mind. And she's somebody who had, you know, a fair, a very stable Dharma practice. Really was into the Dharma, uh, and then you know she got demented and. Things changed. My friend Frank, who who died just a couple of weeks ago, too. I don't know how he died. His his wife didn't tell me. But he was a really good practitioner, you know. And so I have some confidence that somehow he was able to take refuge and generate bodhicitta as he was dying. You know, he had practiced for many years. It was a very, very good practitioner. But on the other hand, he was separating from his wife that he loved very dearly. They had been married for, I don't know, 30-something years. You know, and they were real Dharma friends. So, yeah. I read once uh, in um, Gallagher Butcher's, um in one of his books, that when somebody um, has a strong um, refuge and the Buddha is very present um, during the time of um, dying, that one will not fall into the lower arms. Oh, yeah. That is. Yeah, yeah. That's why, you know, if you have refuge strong in your mind, you will not fall in the lower realms. So the same is going to go definitely, even if you can generate artificial bodhicitta. 
you know, or any kind of dharma motivation that protects your mind and and it acts as the fertilizer that will make a virtuous karma ripen, which will throw you into a good rebirth. Yeah. You just said that um, by thinking of uh, generating bodhicitta and think, taking refuge will bring us to a good karma. But what about if on my life I got angry and nya 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 and nya nya nya? At my time of death, if I can remember to say, oh, I'm taking refuge, it will help me yeah. by doing that? Yes. But why? <laughs> because you'll have a virtuous mind at the time when that karma is ripening. But if you've been angry your whole life, start transforming your mind now so that you really set up a good habit so that that thought of bodhicitta, that refuge in the three jewels, will be much easy, will arise much more easily when you die. Yeah. Okay. Because we're creatures of habit. And what we do, we tend to do again. So this is why it's important to purify, because when we purify, one of the results of purification is that we're breaking that, the habit to do that action again. Okay. Um, I wanted to share then something that is maybe helpful. Um, when I came to the Abbey here, um, eight years, eight and a half years ago, I had this appendix thing that happened in the mm, middle of the night. Right. And it was kind of, um, yeah, dangerous, actually. And um, then I had the surgery, and then I woke up, and then I had some dis uh, recovery time. And I had no time to take any book with me or not even my mala, I think, because it was just so um, explosive. And so then I was there for three days, I think, in the hospital bed and just trying to recover to be able to go home. And so I had nothing, and they had not not even good newspapers or such, really nothing. <laughs> so and then I recognized, okay, what to practice, and I had, I, I think I had just a minimum compared to what I have now, you know, and how important it is then to really know what to do. And imagine you are there for two weeks or one month in a hospice maybe, you know, that you have things in your mind, you can really... Um, Make your time useful. Yeah. yeah. That was kind of a wake-up call. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's why it, it's very good to memorize many of these short texts because then, you know, if you're incapacitated and you're in the hospital, you can recite the text very slowly and contemplate each text. And, you know, you remember each verse and, and uh, think about its meaning. Now, that's very good to do. Also, I like to prepare my mind um, by when I get surprised by something or something mm -hmm. happens unexpectedly to see what my mind does with that. Like if yeah. I get scared and see how I manage my mind to stay even and not yeah. go in that out of control because those are the times when I can actually practice, yes. which is very similar to death time. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the time when something frightening happens, the time when uh, a time when you're in pain, a time when physical pain, 
or a time when uh, you're in mental pain, then, you know, okay, how am I going to deal with my mind? Mm-hmm. And there, there you see, that's actual practice. You know, practice isn't just turning the prayer wheel and, you know, moving your mala. It's changing your mind. Jolene asks, if the dying person does not have a regular mantra he or she is chanting and we see this person is in fear, what mantra should we chant for him or her? It doesn't matter. You just chant anything. (laughs) Yeah. Don't sit and worry about what to chant. You know, the Chinresi mantra is always good. Amani Pemihong, you know, or the Buddhist mantra, or medicine Buddha, or whatever it is. Yeah. Don't worry. If that person has no practice, if, if you know, they know some Dharma, remind them of the Dharma, remind them of their teacher, remind them of the qualities of the three jewels. You know, if they've done even minimal practice, some chanting before or something, remind them of that, say it so that they can hear, hear, yeah. So anything you do is going to be good, especially if, you know, if a person doesn't have much of a practice, anything you do is good. And especially, I think, telling somebody to, uh, you know, bring up their heart of loving and compassion and take that with them as they transition into the next life, to tell them that, you know, that that kind of thing is very good. If it's somebody who's a practitioner, yeah, remind them of refuge, remind them of bodhicitta, talk about emptiness, you know, remind them of of if they have a particular deity that, that they resonate with, remind them of that. Okay, there's a way to write out a Dharma will, will for, you know, uh, what you want people to do and what you want them to remind you of as you're dying. So you can do that and then let the people you're close to know where you keep it. Okay, we have that here, you know, we've... We try and, you know, do all of our powers of attorney and, and all, you know, the, the will about our property, you know, who's going to get my old pair of shoes. And, yeah. And, uh, actually, be, being a Sangha member makes it very easy because actually, uh, what, unless you give specific items to individual people, it goes to the song that goes to the community. So that makes it kind of easy. But you want to make sure you're in agreement because you don't want to be on your deathbed and say, oh, my old pair of shoes, you know, I wanted to leave it to venerable so-and-so and and now it's going to go into the storage closet and she may not get it, you know. (laughs) Okay, or, uh, you know, all the money I had in my in my bank account, and I haven't told anybody any of the details about it, and how are they going to know? And here I am dying, you know, quick, go in my second drawer down in the back underneath the tablets, uh, you know, and pull out the checkbooks and, and the this and the that so that you know where I keep all my money. 
Huh? So it's better to, to plan all this stuff beforehand. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we'll stop here. Okay. So this is really something to think about. And, uh, you know, because if we prepare for death, then they say that dying is like going on a picnic. You know, and I saw, you know, one monk die that way, and it was just amazing, you know. Kind of his body was hemorrhaging, and was incredible stuff was coming out of it. And he was, you know, telling people how to lay his body out, uh, you know, first in the position of the deity that he had practiced, and then when, or first he wanted his body to be sitting up, but it couldn't sustain that. So then in the position of the deity, couldn't sustain that. So then on his right side with his hand like this. And then there was one uh, nun that I knew in Dharmasala, and she died of uh, kidney failure. And I heard that she was sitting in meditation when she died. Yeah. So she was a Western nun. Jana says, how often do you dedicate merit? Only after a formal practice? Or do you do it often throughout the day for even small actions? You can do it. You can do it through small act, for small actions. You can save it for the end of the day as you wish. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>